0: text today comes from hebrews chapter 10 verses 36 and 37 and i'll be reading from the new living translation patience patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do god's will and then you will receive all that he has promised quote for in just a little while the coming one will come and not delay Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to be in this special place here right now. I pray that your spirit would be present, that as we reflect upon our past, that we will see how you have led in the past and also how you want to lead in each of our lives. Lord, help us now as we seek to pursue patience. Help us, Lord, to learn What that means for us today is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I forget, I should send you greetings from Alex Bryan, our division president, Kyoshin Ahn, our executive secretary, and Judy Glass, our treasurer. By the way, this is the first time we've had a woman as one of the officers of the North American division. That's our home territory here across North America of our church. And so we're very excited about our leadership team And they send their greetings as well. Today I want to talk about this topic of patience. What does it mean to be patient? Revelation 14, 12, one of the hallmark texts that describe our church as we understand it, talks about here is the patience of the saints. Of course it talks about other things, but sometimes... We don't always find it very easy to be patient. It's not fun to be patient, and yet God describes this characteristic of, of his people at the end of time, right before Jesus comes, that they will be patient. And I want to suggest there's a couple uh, facets through which we can better understand this, this concept of patience, and I want to begin by telling a story, since Alex has me on this trajectory i love to tell stories and i want to begin with the story of bill bill grew up in a christian home and and as he was growing older, he was, uh, this was the early 19th century, a time of uh, uh, enlightenment. And, and so this was a time when, when deism was becoming popular. And I, I certainly recognized there were a lot of different varieties of deism. But, but the important concept for, for Bill was that as he grew older, he didn't see that, that there would be any purpose for religion in his life. So when he moved away from home, he stopped attending church and and he began to read the writings and have discussions with some of his friends and, and, and this concept of deism, this idea that God is somehow an absentee landlord. Maybe he created us, it really doesn't matter, but whatever that might look like, that God was not involved. He didn't really care about what was happening in your life or mine. And So Bill identified as a deist. As he grew older, he was trying to find meaning and purpose in life. And, and this was at a, at a time in our, in our, our collective nation's history, the, the last time that America and Canada were at war with one another. Uh, we call it the War of 1812, but by then it was 1814. It had been a growing conflict in which the British wanted to come back and punish these rebellious, these wayward colonies. And so they started with an invasionary force coming up from Washington, D.C. Some of them pillaged the nation's capital at that time. In fact, they uh, attempted to burn the president's house and successfully burned part of it and and rebuilt it. And of course, that's why we call it the White House today. And, And a second group of invasionary forces came north from Canada, down Lake Champlain. And they were determined that they would split this young nation in two, in order to punish and be able to hopefully uh, reacquire these colonies. So it was this group that was coming down from the north, and and young Bill, finding needing purpose in his life, he finds a call to patriotism. Now you have to understand a little historical context here, because what was happening at the time, there was no well-organized military. It was the militia. And so, so Bill was called up with many others to defend their homes, their land. Many of the area people, he was a civic community leader. Many of the area people said, well, we will go and fight if you, Bill, will be our leader. And so off they go. In fact, it, there's, a, it, there's a lot of time of, of waiting for him as they're uh, waiting for the engagement of battle and preparation. And in fact, it, it's a terrible time. If you read his autobiography, his memoirs, he talks about this time where disease was rampant and, and they worried if they would even survive that before they can even face the troops. And then on that fateful day, on September 11, 1814, the Battle of Plattsburgh. Now, a little more historical context that the American troops, the American militia really is a more accurate way of describing them. They were outnumbered something like seven to one. And, and to put it further in context, they're using their own homemade weapons versus some of the, the best regulated troops, best equipped troops in the world. And so here they are coming down on these warships down the lake and, and the, the battleships are trying to soften up the uh, American resistance. And, and so you'd have the ships with the cannons booming and, and you would hear the, the boom of the cannon and, and then you'd hear the whistling noise And then bang, the boom, and the bang, and the, the boom, and the whistling noise, which you hoped wasn't getting closer to you. Of course, the, the louder that whistling noise got, the, no, the, 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 the more likelihood it was coming right towards you. And, and it was one of those booms. And then you could hear the whistling noise. It was getting louder. And then finally, it's, it's coming right for him. And, and this time... The ordinance went plop, just a few feet away from him. He knew, Bill knew that he should have, for all practical intents and purposes, he should have died, which began to raise more existential questions for him, questions about what was the meaning of life? Why was his life spared when so many others perished? And of course, for them, what was most interesting of all was the fact that they won that particular battle. And in the official report of the American general, of, uh, despite all the odds, that, that in the battle report, it gave all glory to God alone. There was no other explanation than divine providence for their winning that battle. And so Bill returned home. They were triumphant. And yet he was continuing to ask these existential questions. Is there a God? Is there any meaning and purpose to life? He started coming to church with his family once again for the first time in many, many years. His mother was so thrilled and and yet he would complain because the pastor was often gone as was common in those days. And, and you would read a sermon up front and he would complain at how poorly read the sermons were. And of course his mother, uh, hearing him compl- complain, said, well, maybe you can read the sermon. And so it was on one of those particular church services and he is reading the sermon. And we know what the sermon was because he records it for us. It was the sermon of Alexander Proudfoot, the duty of parents to their children. Now, I've kind of wondered, I've read the sermon, I've looked through it, and and, and what strikes me is that if you read that sermon, is it talks about how parents love to give good gifts to their children. And I wonder, as he was reading it, we know that, that he suddenly broke down. He was weeping and he had to go sit down at the seat and let someone else... Else finished the sermon and he went home and, and he began to read the Bible because for the first time in his life, his whole paradigm of who God is had shifted. It had changed. So he had thought God is some distant absentee landlord. But, but now he saw and he began to ask these questions. How was how his life spared? And now he begins to see perhaps just maybe God was in fact a personal and loving God who cared about him. We also know from his diary, because that's what I love to do, is I'm a historian and a pastor, so I love to look for these kinds of things, right? And, and so I, we know from his, his diary account that he records how he began to read systematically through the Bible. And he writes this and what I think is probably one of the most poignant moments in, in all of our, our church's past, that he writes in this, he says, as he was reading the Bible, in Jesus I found a friend. In Jesus, I found a friend. And this is amazing to me because we begin to see that the genius of Adventism isn't all about the prophecies and chronologies and all these other kinds of things. And in fact, William Miller, as he became more well known, would be certainly widely recognized for all of those things. But what the genius of Adventism was, was discovering how significant it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Think about it with me for just a moment because why would you care about Bible prophecy and Jesus coming again if you don't know and love Jesus? Adventism, the story of Adventism begins when you begin to understand a different picture of God, a loving God, a personal God who cares about you and me the way, tell other stories, another story that's very significant. We've been doing these kind of uh, 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 Zoom classes and everything the last uh, five weeks or so. It's been a, a, just an absolute delight. But the story of, of one of the founding mothers of our church, Ellen Harmon, in her early life, she had a similar kind of story. Her story begins as a young girl, and she was, uh, it was after school, and so it said, she said that she was crossing a common, which was good 19th century parlance for a park and so we know that there was no park between her school and her home so we presume that it was probably after school one day and she's on her way to the family business which was a hat shop a broom shop so there was a common or a park on the way there and so presumably Ellen like her sisters or other family members as a family business was on their way to the To the family business, and she is crossing the common with her twin sister Lizzie. And she hears an angry student, a fellow classmate from school who's chasing them and and throwing rocks. And and so she turns around to look, and, and all of a sudden, she gets hit square between the eyes. She's knocked unconscious. There's blood. In fact, at one point, someone stops to help them and she revives briefly enough and, and, and she says, well, I don't want to soil the, the nice person's carriage. And so the person leaves and she uh, is unconscious again. Fortunately, her twin sister is able to help her be able to, to get her home eventually. And she is in, again, to use 19th century parlance, uh, she's in a stupid state. She's unconscious for the next three weeks. And when she wakes up, She overhears the neighbor asking her mother, what dress are you going to bury her in? Once again, she's going through an existential crisis. She's wondering, if if I die, what's going to happen to me? And it is at that moment that she makes a deathbed surrender to Jesus. She gives her heart to Jesus. She realizes that God is a loving God in heaven that wants nothing more than to save her. Oh, we could tell story after story from our Adventist past. But what's amazing is these stories always begin with a wrong view of God. That When they begin to see the, uh, who God is, as a loving God in heaven, as a loving Father in heaven, that they passionately fall in love with Jesus. Our Adventist story begins when you begin to understand what it means to be passionately in love with Jesus. Oh, I could tell you others. I mean, this afternoon, this is when we, uh, I, I brought some show and tell because that's what historians do. We like some show and tell. I, I brought Sir Isaac Newton, his, his book on, do you know that the great scientist, he fell in love with Jesus too and he, he wrote more about the Bible. I, in fact, I, this is so fun here. This, this observations upon the prophecies of Daniel and the apocalypse. It's, it's amazing how people, when they fall in love with Jesus, they want to share Jesus with others. They want others to be ready as well. And so the first lesson of patience is learning to be passionately in love with Jesus. But then secondly, once we are passionately loved with Jesus, we want to go and tell others. You see that same young man, that Bill, the one who went off to war and came back and was converted, that he had a, con- a deepening conviction on his heart that he must go and tell the world, go and share what you have learned with others. And, and so Bill was, as this, deepening impression was was on his heart that he realized he he needed to do something about it he said no one's ever invited me to speak and wanting a way out he finally made a deal with god which is always a dangerous thing to do he said well god if you send somebody then i'll know it's a sign from heaven And sure enough hardly had he made that deal with god a short few minutes later That's right, there was a knock at the door. His nephew, Irving Guilford, come share with us this coming weekend. We we want you to come and share with us what you've been learning from the Bible. His daughter, Lucy, says that her father was angry, stormed out of the house, and he went out to the nearby Maple Grove. And as the old historian says, that, that he went into that grove a farmer, but he came out of there a preacher. What's fun for me as a historian is that he began to get invited in other places too, to Boston and, and even here to New York City. We know that William Miller preached here in New York City. This was a, a center, a major center of, of Adventism. He preached here over a dozen times here in Manhattan. In fact, they built a huge tent the largest tent in the nation at that time I had some historians actually challenge me surely that wasn't the largest tent the Oberlin tent was larger so we had to go back this is historians having a little bit of a tiff you know back and forth this is what we do and so we went back to the archives and tried to find the exact measurements for both of the tents and I am pleased to tell you the Millerite tent was still yes indeed was the largest tent in the land in the 1840s and they pitched it across the river in Newark New Jersey Go, tell the world. And when Jesus captivates your hearts, it, 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 one of the ironies of, of all of this is it changes the way that you relate to the world around you. Now I, re- I realize some people always say, "Well, Jesus is coming again." Well, well, if you really believe that, then if Jesus is coming, then who cares about what's happening in this world? And the irony is that the exact opposite happens. Because if you believe that Jesus is coming, you want to begin to work for a little bit of heaven here on this earth right now. And so our Millerites, our Adventist forebears were some of the most activists. They, they looked around them at social injustice that was taking place around them and, and realized that this was wrong. Things like chattel slavery that was, that was commonplace in this nation and that they would work to, they said, well, if, if slavery is not going to be in heaven, then we need to start working right now against slavery. And our Advent forebears, they were ardent abolitionists fighting against slavery. And, and I wish I could tell you all the stories. One of my good friends, Kevin Burton, is working on his doctoral dissertation just on this topic and finding dozens of new sources. It's incredible. In fact. Probably one of my most significant historical finds happened two weeks ago and I was just in an Adventist archive pulling out a Millerite document that historians have been looking for for decades called The Hope of Israel. This Millerite periodical from the summer of 1844. And on the back page was a whole article about the evils of slavery. It was part and parcel of the Adventist ethos, that the Adventists would work against injustice. Another way that we find this very clear is that the Millerite movement was empowering of women. If, if God wasn't going to have gender discrimination in heaven, then both men and women could work together to proclaim the beautiful Adventist message here on earth. We know there were many Millerite women that would, would in fact, some of the greatest Adventist preachers in our history of our church were women, In fact, here in New York, a little bit later, Lulu Whitman, she would baptize by herself more people in one year than all of the men in the conference combined. Powerful stories of how God works. Yes, our Adventist forebears were were activists, social activists that would work against uh, any group that was marginalized to uplift within society to to work against those who are oppressed. That is a part of what it means to be Adventist. And one way that we prepare for Jesus' soon return is to be activists, to work for and against, work for equality and to work for uh, against injustice in this world. And yet God calls us not only to that, but one more way that we work out the patience of the saints is through persistence. When will Jesus come? Of course, people, Willie Miller, one of his favorite texts, he liked to quote that I often have students ask me when I teach Adventist history, well, you know, how can you know about Bible prophecy? Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. And he'd say that's correct, but we can know when it is near. And so we're called to stand firm for what we believe. James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. These are, I have, uh, uh, the, I want you to linger on this text today in this coming week that you will think about this. That, and, and it says here, it says, James says, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. By the way, I have to pause for just a moment because I I know, you know, New Testament scholars are going to say, well, Michael, you know, you're a historian, but, but really this is talking about the early Christian church. So they were waiting for Jesus to come. And I say, yes, this has been the great hope of all salvation history. All throughout, from the very beginning of, uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we, we know that, that, that people were looking towards the Messiah's coming. And, and yes, it's true, in the first century, they're waiting for Jesus to come as well. They were, it, it, think about it for just a moment. What would be the result? What would happen if, if they weren't waiting for Jesus to come? Yes, it only makes sense. Of course they were wanting and eagerly anticipating Jesus to become because that is the great hope of all the ages. They were waiting for Jesus. And says, stand firm, be patient because the Lord's coming is near. One other interesting way that we can also recognize, and I have a friend of mine who just found out recently that he has terminal cancer. The cancer has come back. There's, there's no cure for it. They say you probably have at most a month to live. It's because for each of us, yes we wait with eager anticipation but the reality is, is that irrespective of what time and place we live that that except for the, when Jesus comes that we will all see Jesus come at some point and, and uh, texting back and forth with my friend. I'm going to go see him this coming week But but you know, he says, I'm ready because I know when I close my eyes the last time, the next thing I see is Jesus and he will heal my broken body. Yes, we wait with patience and we stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Whether, whatever that might look like for each and every one of us. And by the way, verse 9 is quite intriguing, too. I think every pastor should love this verse. Uh, and I can do this coming and visiting. I'm sure this doesn't apply here, but it says, don't grumble. Against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. So while we're waiting, don't get grumpy. Let's encourage each other. That's one of the things I love about coming and visiting this church uh, whenever we can. is this I just feel so, you know, so much love for each other where everybody just wants to encourage each other. But, but don't be tempted to be grumpy. Be kind. Yes, the Lord's coming is near. And he calls us to wait with patient endurance. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 36 and 37 are key text for this moment, for this message here today. It says, patient endurance is what you need now. I'm sure some people are going to need that tomorrow in the marathon. Patient endurance. Endurance. So that you will continue to do God's will. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever time we have left is a privilege, it's an opportunity to share Jesus with others. That's God's will the, to live out the gospel in our lives. Whatever time we have left to patiently endure doing God's will. And he says, then you will receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay because God calls us to live as a people of hope well what does this mean well I remember a story from oh some years ago when my wife and I were younger we're waiting for I found out the uh, we had one of these tests and it wasn't a COVID test that turned positive it was one of these pregnancy tests I found out that I was going to be a dad of course, it was very early on. And so at that point, just like you can imagine, you know, it's, it's thrilling. I was it's one of the happiest privileges things in my life to ever happen is to, to become a father. And I've got my two teenage children here now, so I can embarrass them just a little bit. But this didn't happen to them. So I'm not telling a story about them. This is the story of, of our oldest arrival. And so we found out that she was coming. We are going we didn't even know it was a she yet, but we I found out I am going to be a dad, you know. And, and I was just so happy. And the next day I had to leave on a trip, go to camp meeting. Good friend of mine that invited us to be there, good friend of the family. And so I was excited. I was, I got there at the campground and and camp meeting and what have you. And and so he sees me, how's it going, Michael? And and I told him things are going great. And we're just kind of, you know, talking back and forth. And, And then he looks at me and he says, Michael, there's something different about you. You look really happy. And I said, oh, I am happy. Is there something different that I don't know about? Oh, no, I don't want to give his name away, but, 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 but no, everything's great. I, you know, I'm just happy. And so every day he would introduce me and I would speak and, and, and he would look over at me and, and at various times, he, you know, Michael, you just look so happy. And I said, I am happy. And finally, the last day of camp meeting in front of the, everybody there, Remember, it's supposed to be a secret, right? Finally looks at me, He says, I've been trying to figure out why Michael is so happy this week. In front of everybody, he says, I think he's going to be a father. Oh. oh, the secret was out. Because as we patiently wait with hope, it is contagious. We can't keep it to ourselves because the good news is indeed that good. God calls us to be patient as we live as a people of hope. Amen.